Okay, we're going to do a little bit of housekeeping on this episode. First, we have the new cameras up. So, if you were just listening to the audio and you want to check out the video, definitely do that. Facebook, YouTube, some clips will be out on Instagram, all that jazz. I think it looks better. I'm hoping it doesn't get compressed to the point where it looks terrible when it does hit those platforms. I think it should be better than those other cameras we were previously using. Fingers crossed. Second, we have been doing two episodes a week. That's what I've been shooting for, at least upload-wise. We've kind of been recording quite a bit more than that, so I'm a little bit behind the gun as far as clipping. So if you like those clips that we've been putting out, I keep saying we. It's just me. It's just me over here. If you like the clips that have been coming out, I'm a little bit behind. I'm going to go back through the catalog of roughly the past five or six episodes, I believe, and pull some more clips and update them. So be on the lookout for that. Those are going to be coming out. I haven't forgotten. I've just been trying to push out these podcasts and we got a little bit behind the ball for clips. Okay, last two things, and then I promise I will stop talking and we can jump into the episode. This is a two-part release, kind of. We're releasing two podcasts at the same time, I should say. It's not two parts. It's two separate podcasts. So if you're just seeing this one, another one was just dropped, number 66, with the amazing women from Humboldt Sugar Co. Definitely check that one out if you didn't see it because this one came up first or if it just got buried definitely check that one out awesome podcast the last bit of housekeeping is kind of a big step for us for the podcast every podcast from here on out at least in theory will now also be live streamed again this is a fingers crossed thing the wi-fi has been acting up over here a little bit so We're going to see how it goes. If you're listening to this right now, the live stream is probably up for the most recent podcast. Again, fingers crossed. (laughs) Now that I said that, it's probably not going to pan out. But from here on out, that is the goal. I will still release these podcasts in the format that they have been. But there will also be the added aspect of it being live if you want to check it out. I'm going to put it out on YouTube, Facebook and possibly Podbean, which is the hosting platform we use, I use for this podcast that pushes it out to all those other platforms. So if you want to just listen to the audio, you could download Podbean and listen to it live, or you can check out YouTube and check out Facebook, and it should be live on there as well. Okay, done with all the housekeeping. As far as this podcast and our guest today, I really, really enjoyed talking with our guest. I know I say that a lot. Luckily, it's because I mean it a lot. And if you are a recurring listener of this podcast, you've probably gotten a feeling that I love going where most people might not like going conversationally. I'm not afraid to talk about anything. I love talking about those subjects that they say you shouldn't talk about at the dinner table because I'm still trying to round out my 
perspective and what I feel and what I think. I am so happy that our guest came on. It was a great, great conversation. It was incredibly interesting hearing her perspectives on things and conversely me trying to put the right words to my perspectives and hearing about the organization that she's involved with. It was just an overall really, really good podcast. I'm so thankful she took the time and came on. It it was a blast. I don't want to do it any injustice, so I'm going to let her take it over from here. Please give it up for Brie D'Souza. I woke up one day without any training, without any desire to do a marathon, and just ran a marathon around town. Okay. Yeah. Not part of anything. Not part of anything. Not sanctioned. Okay. Uh, Can you do me a favor? Just pull this. Try to have it like a fist away from your mouth. Perfect. See how I'm trying to avoid it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Just, I think it was a Saturday or it might have been a Sunday, actually. Mm -hmm. And I just went for a run. And my parents were riding their bikes along with me. And we did three miles. And I was like, you know what? I, I could go a little bit farther. And then by mile eight, I was pretty hard set on, I think this is going to be, I think this is going to be a marathon. And so we just kept going. I didn't have any water. So oh, that was a learning experience. We stopped at a couple water fountains. My parents had water bottles, luckily. So I was just okay. snagging some off them. But had no preparation, no planning. Wasn't running. No yeah. training leading up to that. Had you run recently at all? Or what was the most amount of miles you had done before? 27? Prior to running that, maybe five okay. was my max. Okay. Maybe five. And the last time I ran, I believe was four or five months prior. Okay. Wow. And so was this like a pandemic moment where you yeah. were like in the midst of it I think I was all? losing my shit yeah. and was like, I Still. need to do, <laughs> I need to do something. Yeah. And just started running. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, respect for that. That's Thanks. awesome. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't recommend it. I would definitely recommend training. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was pretty intense. <laughs> By the end of it, I tried to stop and I physically could not stop running. So we actually had dinner reservations. It was my sister's birthday. Okay. We were going to go out to dinner. Okay. We, we thought this was just going to be a morning run for an hour, you know, <laughs> took all day. Mm-hmm. And at the end, my parents, I kept running around the armory over in Cutting over there. Okay. And my parents went to go get the car mm-hmm. and I just dove in sideways into the car and kicked my feet straight out the window because I couldn't stop running. And if I bent my legs farther than like 20 degrees, I just started cramping up. Oh my goodness. So it was, yeah, it was rough. I had a couple whiskeys at dinner to try to soothe the pain. That helped. Yeah. Yeah. And what were the next couple weeks like? So I can't imagine it's like you wake up the next day feeling good. It actually (laughs) wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I, within three days, I was pretty much back to a hundred percent. Wow. Three days. Yeah. You know what? There are not many stories that I say deserve your own plaque on the wall, but that one deserves yeah, one. <laughs> I think everybody was pretty sur- – I was definitely pretty surprised. Yeah. The way I was hurting that first night, I thought I was going to be down for a solid two weeks. Yeah. That was my expectation. Yeah. And the next day – I rolled out that night a little bit, and the next morning I was like, okay, 
walking around a little stiff, but mm-hmm. not not crazy in pain. Nothing too yeah bad. Yeah. Did you feel like a whole new person though? I felt it cleared my head for probably those three days. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I was going down the rabbit hole again of yeah. okay i need to do something else yeah i think it was it was run another marathon yeah <laughs> it was so november 2020 so uh-huh. kind of the heat of the pandemic yeah and i think the gyms had been closed so i wasn't exercising i wasn't doing anything mm-hmm. i was going to school but it was online so i was just in my room mm-hmm. basically a majority of the day yeah and i think that weighs on you and yeah. i just started to i felt I just didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And I felt that running that and doing something that extreme mm-hmm. would ease that. Mm-hmm. And it did. Yeah. And then it faded. Mm-hmm. And now I think my next thing is going to be there's this race called the 4x4, four four, which is you run four miles a day. Or you run four miles every four hours for 48 hours. The 4x4x48. Four by four by oh, okay. Yeah. Do you do it somewhere or do you... No, nope, just, like a it's not a sanctioned race. It's just an ch- online challenge okay. that people are doing. Uh-huh. I heard about it from a guy called David Goggins. I read his book. He did that. Okay. It's just sadistic, just to put yourself through <laughs> a challenge. Yeah, because you're not probably sleeping very well. And yeah, just, every uh... four hours. I don't think physically it would be that bad because mm-hmm. you have... If you run your four miles in an hour, then you have three hours rest, right? Mm-hmm. But mentally... For 48 hours? Yeah, I imagine somewhere between that, like, 24 to 48 ma- hour mark, you're, like, you're a little sleep deprived. I'm thinking by hour probably. 12, you're over it. <laughs> you're by right. hour 12, you're, like, I First need day. to just go to sleep and not do this anymore. Yeah. 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 That um, that sounds like labor uh, and not having a baby. Not something you would choose to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right? Not something somebody would set out to try to do. Right, yeah. right. Not knowing what you're getting into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's me. But we are here to talk about you and your affiliation with the Eureka Chinatown Project. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how long have you been involved in that? How um, how long has that been around? So it's we just celebrated our kind of our one-year mark. It started, we had our first meeting April 3rd, 2021, so... We're in May of 2022 now, so we just had this big celebration last week. It felt really good um, because we're just a group that just kind of grew from emails and Zoom meetings and, you know, really in the heat of the pandemic and, um, you know, in a response to the rise in AAPI hate across the country, but also just kind of like a need for community and just kind of a group of people just seeing this um this void in our in our community that needed to be filled and we I guess did that in any means that was necessary and that was you know online and um and that was really cool so you know last weekend we were able to like see each other for the first time really oh that was the first meeting um were those kind of events you guys had put on yeah that was kind of like our first big event i we had done like a little shindig like last summer um kind of an outside um get together but it was like in the middle of the summer i think some a lot of people weren't here or it wasn't didn't really feel ready to be together yet um this summer is feeling a little better, you know, with having vaccines and um, 
and just kind of ways to fight the virus. It feels a little better to be in person. Everybody's a little more comfortable. A little more comfortable outside anyways. Um, But we're still cautious. And um, yeah, so that was just really, really cool because there's about 30 of us. And it all started with this idea of, I mean, people just being like, hey, did you know there's a Chinatown here? And it was like, no, did you know there's a Chinatown here? And it was like, there was a Chinatown here. And there's literally nothing in our community that says that or like tells you about it. So we just set out to put a plaque up um, on the block of where the historic Chinatown once stood. And from there, it just evolved. And it just got a mind of its own, this project. (laughs) Um, So now here we are a year later with a lot to celebrate. And so it was just grassroots. Mm-hmm. You all just found each other. Oh, yeah. I um, It started, well, where most good stories start off in the Instagram DMs. Um, I messaged, um, I, I ended up talking to Alex uh, Ozaki McNeil, and she is part of Hopi, which is the Humble Asians and Pacific Islanders in Solidarity. Um, they had kind of just formed as an activism group um, and a community Asian American group. And, you know, I think we had just kind of posted about some things that were had we had shared interests. And and I was like, yeah, it's really cool what you guys are doing. Um, I was wondering, like, has anyone ever talked about, like, putting a plaque or recognizing Chinatown? Because this is crazy. Um we have no mention of it. And she's like, no, but I think that's a really good idea. And it kind of just got thrown out to um, a few of the Hoppy members who then rolled in a few other community members. And that's kind of how that's, I feel like the origin of the project and how we continue to grow is just people bringing other people and, you know, tapping into their resources. And it was really, you know, it's been grassroots from, from the beginning. Um, I think things really changed when we got the city involved and there was just an overwhelming positive response to our initiative on this. And then more projects grew from that and um, and more opportunities to recognize Chinatown. So that was uh, really cool. But it very quickly spiraled, I think, from, you know, hey, we're just getting together and talking about this little volunteer thing to... I'm working, you know, 20, 30 hours a week on this like part-time job that I don't get paid for kind of thing. Um, So, you know, we've done a lot in the last year and that's been really, really cool to see, but we definitely put in the work to do it. I think that's the best way for a movement like that to start, Mm -hmm. right? Grassroots, everyone comes together with this seemingly innocuous idea of, hey, let's get a plaque. Mm -hmm. And then it just snowballs into this huge project which i didn't even know we had chinatown until i heard about you guys oh yeah? i didn't know that was a thing yeah and are you born and raised here yeah yeah okay and had heard nothing about it wow yeah, yeah. isn't that just i mean it's just so telling of like how history is told um and that it can easily be erased if you just stop talking about something you know the trauma i think is still underlying and it's still there in some way we can feel that energy, but we can't put our finger on it. Um, and I feel like by the China, by the Eureka Chinatown project, just recognizing that history, we're able to like air it out and we're able to like move towards a new future and a different future. Um, was that the intention behind starting with the plaque? Was you guys just wanted to get some recognition for 
yeah. the Chinatown that was there at one point. Yeah, that's kind of all it was. And I don't think we really knew what we were getting ourselves into <laughs> when we were like, we should recognize this. I don't think we really knew what that entailed. It's been a history project for all of us and a lot of learning lessons for all of us. We have... Um, we're a wide variety of volunteers that make up this committee, and we have we have historians and scholars on the committee. We have, um, uh, you know, just passionate community members. We have artists. We have, you know, everywhere anyone um, has kind of joined in, and um, even though we have so many different perspectives on this, I still think we had to sit back and take a moment to learn because the only history we had that we that the common history that you know about Chinatown um if you do know about it is that there was a Chinatown here mostly from like the gold rush and um kind of the prospect of gold and um prosperity and overnight the Chinese community was rounded up and driven out put on ships and sent down to San Francisco and that was because a white city council member was caught in the crossfire near Chinatown between what they claim as two rival Chinese gangs. Um, that's been the common story. Uh, and that's kind of all you ever hear. And we had to kind of take a step back and say, maybe there's more to the story than this. Um, and what do we need to learn before we start teaching other people first? And I think that was putting that story into perspective. It's not just one random instance where somebody randomly got shot and then all hell broke loose and then we rounded everybody up and kicked them out. No, it was a long time coming. And this comes from a national level. We have um, the Chinese Exclusion Act passing in 1882, which was three years before the 1885 expulsion here. Um, and then you have a lot of, uh, you know, state kind of laws and just kind of this general culture that it trickled down to a local level here in Eureka. And um, with a lot of people being out of jobs, with also this mentality of like being in the Wild West, I think that we had all of that kind of come to a head and ultimately have this ethnic cleansing happening in our town. And um not every town and city responded that way. There were other roundups happening across the West of Chinese people, and there was definitely a strong anti-Chinese sentiment across um, across the West and most of the nation, but it was really centered over here. So, um, so you know, we had to kind of color that in a little bit more. And then also we asked some hard questions, like we're only hearing the story from one point of view from the white settlers who came here and ultimately kicked out the Chinese and they're the ones that are perpetuating the story. We don't ever hear from the Chinese community that was kicked out. Um, and that's, we still haven't really heard from them because it's hard to find them. Uh, you know, they were kind of kicked out and sent to San Francisco and, um, and they probably never wanted to talk about it again, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I would <laughs> imagine. Know? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, I think that's our next step is how do we find those those family members and those descendants of people who um, were driven out of Eureka and how do we tell their stories? Um, yeah, I'm not a historian. I'm just a passionate community member, but uh, I'm realizing there's a lot of biases in the stories that we tell and the history that we're told. Oh, you could just 
read any history book and you'll pick that up. Yeah. You don't, actually, you don't even have to read a history book. You can just think about it mm-hmm. and you're going to come to that conclusion. Mm-hmm. It's weird in that it really is just the story that's documented from whatever side wins. That's mm-hmm. the story that goes down uh, yep. as yeah. right, yeah. for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was the lead up to the Exclusion Act of 1882? Um, yeah, so... Uh, we were in a little bit of a depression just uh, nationwide, so a lot of people were out of jobs. Um, and Chinese people, it's very easy when, you know, when things go bad, it's very easy to point fingers at other people. Especially and, at the immigrants. Yes, especially people that look different. They have a very different culture. Like, Chinese people then were, like, it was, they were almost like... Um, things to watch like oh what are the Chinese doing today because their culture was so different from the European immigrants that came over and it was just so foreign so when it kind of came to things are really bad why are things really bad it, it was probably very much a political ploy for politicians to point the finger at you guys point the finger at each other don't point the fingers at us kind of thing so it was very easy to kind of point the fingers at Chinese um they were blamed for taking jobs working for lower wages and therefore kind of like lowering the general economy and um and then of of course just kind of being like dirty unsanitary very unwelcoming um and it's just you know I feel like it's it's so cliche to say history repeats itself, but it is repeating itself. Um, to this day, we still are seeing those same uh, stereotypes um, and anti-Chinese sentiment. You're seeing um, like auto workers are being are getting their jobs taken. I mean. Asian people are always being blamed for for jobs being taken or that they're smarter and that's why they get these jobs or affirmative action or whatever it is. And then you have COVID-19 where also blamed for a pandemic and that they're dirty and they're unsanitary and they're disease ridden. And so you're seeing a lot of these similar themes come back up. And I don't think they're new themes at all. I think that they're deep rooted in our country's culture. Um, and we don't even know that we're doing them a lot of the time. And that, um, so I think it really speaks to the importance of talking about history and what happened before so we can kind of address what's happening now. Um, and I think that's really a big part of the Chinatown project is that, again, we thought this was like a history project and realized very quickly, it's a very much a now project. You know, it's we're, we're talking about our community today and how we're still being affected by the same um, just kind of discrimination as, uh, you know, the Chinese community was 130 years ago. And so what was included with that act? It didn't expel oh, Chinese nationals uh, from from the states, right? Yeah. Um, no, it just like it really limited who could come in and that you had to be like a merchant or you had to have like um, specific kind of job titles of sorts. But it was. It's really hard. Yeah, yeah. not to put you on the spot <laughs> no, no, here. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, it's just hard to like 
you know, what's written in law, but like what really gets, what, gets what really happens, down. you know, when you're at the border and being like cross-examined and you're being held on Angel Island for months on end, like not being home in China and not being in America, you're just kind of sitting there. Um, so ultimately it allowed people, Chinese people just to be further discriminated against with the backing of the law and limit their rights yeah yeah they couldn't um they already couldn't be uh citizens um and they couldn't own land they couldn't own land um they they really limited the page act limited uh it happened a few years before the exclusion act but it limited chinese women from coming into um the u.s as well uh which also you know it doesn't I don't know. It, you just don't understand the repercussions of this until you actually have this happen for generations and you see this void where you don't have Chinese families and people thriving here. And um, you just kind of have a lot of men working and um, and it causes a lot of issues. So, yeah, I yeah, it's just um, I think we're still feeling a lot of those effects today, even though. The Exclusion Act was repealed in the 40s, which really wasn't, wasn't that, that long ago. No, no. And I think that also speaks to a lot of like people who are um, kind of an older generation that you can tell are still living with a lot of those biases um, and just inherent discrimination because you because that's what our culture told us. That's what our government told us was right for so long. And so this all builds up and culminates in 85 when Eureka does the expulsion mm-hmm. of Chinese citizens. Yeah, yeah. So it all came to a head, you know, when you look at the newspaper articles from that time leading up to it. Are there newspaper articles? Yeah, there? yeah, there oh, are. Wow. I mean, the Time Standard was around, I think, then too, or some version of it. Um, but yeah, that's kind of, and that's also like, that's all we have to kind of look at right now. So that's why we, it's really important for us to find those family members that can tell us the stories that were passed down through generations because the only documentation we have of what happened to the Chinese community is basically through newspapers. And you see, you know, um, in the earlier years when the Chinese came, the newspapers were very positive about the Chinese community. There was really no like issues um but then as kind of everything starts to get ramped up you see the newspaper just change their perspectives and they really start to rile up people and um one of the one of the articles that stands out to me in working with this project is one that happened um pretty close to when the expulsion happened in february of 1885 and it's kind of complaining about um, the upcoming Chinese New Year that happens around January, February. Um, It was supposed to happen in February that year. And um, it's kind of like, you know, the Chinese are, they're out setting out their firecrackers again and they're being loud and we can't deal with another like nuisance of a Chinese New Year again. Um, And you, like you see that being said in in public papers and it's, you could only imagine how that sets like lands on somebody who is maybe out of work or um, is, you know, already kind of frustrated about other things. And so you have this like leading up to this expulsion where it's not just this one instance. Um, people have been egging it on for a while. 
And actually only a day or two before the expulsion, another article comes out that basically says, you know, if a white person is ever innocently um, harmed by the Chinese, all all the Chinese will have to pay for it, where it almost seems premeditated that this expulsion happened. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's really interesting to kind of try to connect those dots a little bit. And again, I'm not a historian, so I'm sorry if there are things that I say that are <laughs> slightly wrong. Um, but Don't worry. That's my that's my whole <laughs> M.O. on this podcast. I say something wrong every podcast. So. <laughs> um, yeah, we live and we learn. But um, but generally, I mean, it, it just the more you dig into it, the more very clear it becomes that this was. This was a long time. This was coming. This was is definitely up. yeah, definitely building up and um and there're just some really interesting details I think that I don't know if if it was premeditated or not or definitely, you know, expected in some way. Um and it's really it's funny in a weird way that Eureka claims to have like a um a peaceful roundup where they said like it was peaceful nobody was injured nobody died kind of thing but it's like was was it though we do we don't we don't know ultimately um but that's how they marketed it which is also kind of you know kind of crazy but it became known as the eureka method and other cities around california and across the west coast followed that same method of rounding up their Chinese, giving them, um, you know, hours to pack up and leave and driving them out of the city um, because they were a nuisance because they couldn't be dealt with anymore. Was Eureka the first city to do that? It was not the first city to do it. Um, Tacoma, Washington had a uh, an expulsion um, a few years before, uh, but it was pretty deadly. Uh, there was, and uh, I think a lot of Native groups as well were involved in that. Um, I don't know a lot of these specifics about it, but it was, um, comparatively, Eureka was considered peaceful. <laughs> and I say that with, like, quote air quotes, right? It's, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But that's what, they, that's what they said happened, is that they chose the more... Um, Humane. I guess. <laughs> yeah, if you had to put a word to <laughs> yeah, it. I sure. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. so for people that don't know, they were given 48 hours to pack up and leave. And mm-hmm. they rounded up 260 something odd people and put mm-hmm. them on steamboats for San Francisco. Yeah, I'd say yes about, um, you know, there's a few sources that say somewhere between 40, 24 to 48 hours. They were rounded up pretty quickly. And then um, it seems like... The ships that they were waiting to, the ships they were sent out to San Francisco and they were waiting for the weather to clear and the tides to be right to leave Eureka, actually. So I think they were held in warehouses for a couple of days, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically, that was that was the story. And um, at that time, you know, with that two to three hundred people that they rounded up, um, that Chinatown rivaled the size of San Francisco's Chinatown at that time. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's not... So it was pretty big. Yeah. It was big in terms of, you know... Scale. Yeah. So um, now, I mean, there's no... (laughs) There's there's 
no comparison, but it also I feel like speaks to, you know, if we didn't have an expulsion, what would our Chinese community, what would our Asian American community be like today? Would we still have a Chinatown? Would we have, um, you know, how many people would live here? What would our population be like? Um, could look completely different. It would look completely different. And I think there's people that are probably upset that we're riling up the Asian American community right now. People that don't necessarily want to see that happen. Um, and that's unfortunate too. But I think after this last year and everything that we've done, um, I can't say that we're going back. We can't go back to 1885 at this point. We shouldn't. <laughs> we that, shouldn't. <laughs> leave, leave, the, leave that kind of history to the history books. Mm -hmm. Learn from it, but don't. we don't need to be repeating that. Oh, gosh, I hope not. And the idea <laughs> that you would just get forcibly removed mm -hmm. from your home. Because it was an ultimatum, right? Leave or... Because there was... So the council member gets shot mm -hmm. and a mob of 600 people... Yeah. Gets riled up. A lot of people. Yeah. A lot and they of people. hung a gallows like yeah. right on the edge of Chinatown. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah, so you're literally fleeing for your life at that point. It was like you had, I don't know, maybe it's painted as they had a choice to stay or not. I don't think it is, but you didn't, you didn't have a choice. It's either you stay or you die. Yeah. It was very much. They weren't was, asked to leave. They were not asked. It was asked like, oh, to you're going to, we've got some boats coming. Yeah. Yeah. There was. Um, coincidentally just boats in the harbor there are two boats there the city of Chester and the Humboldt which is um, I don't know I hear from some sources it was kind of odd that there were two boats you know hang hanging out in the harbor at that time um, but some people say it's not so do you think there's a chance it was premeditated because he shot the council member shot and it's not in Chinatown it's on the edge He's like walking. Away. No, he's on. He's um. He's walking down the street that you know borders the block of Chinatown. And did he die from that, or just? Yeah, he oh, died. Okay. That's and um. You know, I'm not speaking with my like Chinatown project. Yeah, that was separate. Hat. <laughs> we're separate you know. <laughs> Me as a person, you put the conspiracy hat on a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I. You know, I do feel like there's just too many. Um, too many details that just align way too conveniently for um, the people that drove out of the Chinese community. Um, and again, reading the articles leading up days before the expulsion happened, like it almost it is pretty much said in an article, like if somebody, if a white person is harmed or dies from what's happening in Chinatown, the Chinese will pay for it. Like it it it's very it feels to me. Again, I'm not a historian, so I haven't, you know, uncovered, I haven't lifted up every single rock, but I mean, my gut tells me this is not a one-off thing. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, now since I can look at that, I can see the writing on the wall and how it led up to what it did. Um, I do think it makes me a little bit more weary of like the what we're going through now in the divide in just beliefs and perspectives in our, in our country. And that's, um, and gosh, I hope it doesn't turn out the same way. I hope we, we learn and we can, we can change the course a little bit. Weary in the sense that it seems like the divide is being pushed a little bit or in terms of 
Yeah, I think that there's more of a div- I don't know. I mean, we probably have had a divide for a long time, but um, I think as uh, BIPOC and people of color are becoming more forward with um, their their learned and lived experiences, um, I think that bothers a lot of people and it changes what has been set. Um, for years and generations and um, people don't like change very much so I think there's definitely like a you know um, there's a lot of change happening and I think that that can be a little scary Um, and you don't know how people react when they're scared and they're they feel threatened even though that may not be the intent so I feel like as as a as a country and a culture we move forward a couple of steps but then we come back even more steps you know and I feel like we're going to kind of keep bouncing back and forth like that but hopefully continuing to move forward in in the right direction prior to this whole Roe versus Wade thing I would have said I feel like we're gen- generally moving forward consistently mm-hmm. but the fact that that keeps coming back up seems a little that's that's crazy and that it's is like, 2022 and we're still debating abortion. Right. So that's the thing. It's like, you know, there's so many of these topics that it's like, I thought we had already, you know, decided what, what the best way is. And nope. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's what I'm talking about is that we move forward a couple of steps and we move back even more. And that's, um, I think that will continue to happen for a while, but I think it's more important that we all come forward with um, what our experiences are like living here and being who we are and um and we take time to listen to each other i know that's kind of hard to ask of people but i think right now is a listening phase we just need to be i think some people need to stop talking and i think some people need to start talking in some ways people can you elaborate on that well i I feel like there are communities that have been silenced over generations, and I think it's important for them to step up and speak about who they are and what their lived experiences are. And for those people that have been um, in positions of wealth and power to stop talking and to listen to those silence groups. Yeah. So um, I think I feel like how are you feeling on the whole race topic? Oh, we can we can talk about it. We can talk about anything. I think I like that you were trying to gauge that right there. I feel like (laughs) my presentation, I just shaved. So I have this mustache now. I feel like it makes me look like I'm a little (laughs) like I might have a MAGA hat somewhere in my house. I don't. Uh, But I've noticed the mustache kind of leans that way a little bit. Yeah, we can talk about that. We can talk about anything. I didn't think that at all about your mustache. Oh, okay. Yeah. Looks good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the reason I asked is because there seems to be a lot of sentiment around, oh, some voices need to not, some voices need to take a back seat. Mm-hmm. And whenever I've heard that, it's always been in reference to white people. Oh, white people need to sit down and stop talking. Yeah. And yeah. I can understand the sentiment behind letting voices that have previously been oppressed speak Mm -hmm. i just think it gets dangerous when we start trying to dictate okay who gets to speak Mm -hmm. and why and okay this group needs to not speak i Mm -hmm. think that's when you get 
that's when division really starts to run rampant because then that group starts feeling as though they don't get a voice and mm-hmm. that it creates some tension there. Yeah, yeah. That could be dangerous too. I totally yeah. hear that. Um, and I think it's more like you have the Eureka Chinatown project where um, they are trying to, you know unearth this history and tell this story and tell multiple perspectives of this story and bring back an Asian American community that has been lost in this community for so many years um, that as a person who doesn't identify as Asian American and doesn't understand what that means to their lineage and to their everyday experiences in this town it's not that you you don't ever get to say anything it's it's more of how can I help how can I listen to what you're trying to put out there and amplify your voice um so I don't think it's a uh I can only one I don't think it can be only one person can speak I think that it's about being more mindful about what we're speaking about and making sure that we're taking time to listen to others before we just talk. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to put it, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I start speaking about Pacific Islander hate, obviously I have no idea what I'm talking about because I'm not Pacific Islander. If I start talking about Chinese hate, I don't know what that looks like. I'm not Chinese. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, but I don't want to discourage you from talking about it. Those are really important conversations that we all need to have. And I think that we all need to have, um, we need to give ourselves grace with all of this, is that this is all new to everyone. Change is new to everyone. Um, But how can we, you know, best learn from each other? And make sure we're taking time to understand what we're learning and what other people are saying before just trying to jump the gun and just respond to it. Um, and I think that that's, that's just, I don't know, innate in us to just like want to speak and want to talk. And, um, you know, maybe sometimes we suppress that a little bit just to, just to listen a little longer and make sure we know what we're speaking on before we speak. Well, that's human nature, right? Everybody has an opinion. Everybody wants to get theirs out because, their opinion is right and mm-hmm. they want to make sure other people hear it yeah that's just that's just how people communicate with each other nowadays that has been one of my biggest lessons with the chinatown project um i don't i don't typically feel like i have a vote in things like i will um in you terms know, of and i so with like community organizing and leading volunteers like like the chinatown project is and um It's just a it's um, a lot of people just voicing their opinions. And I think being heard because I think we all came to the Chinatown project from different places, um, even though maybe we're all Asian American or have, you know, some kind of link to the Asian American community. um, We're all very much coming from different perspectives and have a different idea of what the Chinatown project is and what it could have been, you know, back when we were in these initial meetings. So um, I do think it's just kind of listening to people. I, uh, and we had long Zoom meetings. We, we started off with Saturday morning Zoom meetings. They go for like two, three hours. You're just, you know, chatting and, um, and just hearing everybody out. I think that was, I, 
I think that's healing in itself, too, is just being able to to have a voice. Did everybody have a different direction that they wanted to take mm, the project in? I think there were groups, definitely, where there were some people that were um, that very much just saw this as a history project. They very much just wanted to tell the story and leave it in the past, but tell that story, and that was kind of it. Um, I think other people, and you have the other side where people saw, um, you know, a need and demand for reparations for what has been done and, you know, kind of action to be taken. So I think you had anyone, you had people across the spectrum on what they were kind of seeing what the outcome of this project could be. Um, and, you know, it's still, we're still in it. Um, it will, it will probably keep going. I think we're in a little bit of a transition, um, after we've gotten our initial set of projects done over the last year and we were able to kind of have this celebration, um, I think now a, a week after our, our event. So sorry, we're still kind of decompressing here in ways, but, you know, I think we'll have a debrief and kind of talk about it and talk about what the last year has meant to us, what it has meant to our community and what that means for the future and what we ultimately want to do. Because I think the first thing we had to do was just a level set. Uh, there's no recognition of Chinatown in the community. We had to first just do that, just recognize Chinatown. Um, but again, as we started to drill, dig into it a little bit more, um, we just saw that it just, the history we were trying to unearth linked directly to what we were experiencing today. So now, now since we've kind of unearthed this history and put it out in the open, how do we further educate ourselves? How do we further educate our community? Um, and how do we make sure the story continues to be told uh, with multiple perspectives included in it and not just one? Was the hate against the Asian community, was that big here as a response to COVID? I know that like in New York mm -hmm. and on the East Coast, there was a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in big cities, you're going to get a lot of coverage for that. Um, I it, did hear stories of people experiencing um, discrimination here. I've heard it for a long time, though. I don't think it was just in the last year and just around COVID. Um, I think this community has been very quiet about it, though. The thing, um, the thing about, or I guess my experience with racism and discrimination is that in some what it does to your core is it makes you feel, it makes me feel very um, small and it doesn't make me want to talk about it. It makes me feel embarrassed in some way. And it could just be something very, you know, it doesn't seem like a big deal at all, but you're walking down the street and somebody like ching chong ling longs you something, you know, says something like go back to your country or just, you know, something that to them may just seem like, something small, you know, throughout their day. But when that's directed at you and it hits you like that, it affects you for a while. It could affect your whole day, if not longer. And um, and whenever that's really happened to me, I feel like it has, thankfully it has never been violent, um, but I don't want to talk about it. I don't, I want to forget it as quickly as I can, even though it shakes me to my core. Um, and I do feel like we've been experiencing that as a community too, is that it's, 
we are we're just uh, trying to articulate it in some way some just how do you even say it how do you even ask for help so I I feel like we have felt it there's not a ton of reported from what we understand there's you know not a lot of reported racial acts of violence um but I don't think that doesn't mean it doesn't happen (laughs) at all um and, I, and of course, you're going to see that just a lot more in bigger cities because it's out in, in the open, you know. And there's a yeah. bigger population. And a bigger population, yeah. And you have cameras and things like that. And we're in a sm- small rural town, so, um, yeah. I mean, y- you feel it, though. Y- you feel it. In the um, There's this – sometimes I can feel like a little bit of like an unwelcome – unwelcoming vibe of sorts and it's sometimes really hard to put your finger on um but it's here and and it does make what we do hard um but you know after last weekend and seeing the celebrations and people coming out to gather for the Asian American community and to learn about our culture like that was really encouraging and makes me remember like yes there are maybe a group of people that don't want us to thrive in this world but there's so many more people that do and that's really cool to see yeah it's a small minority that spews Mm -hmm. hate right yeah well hopefully i would say so Mm -hmm. i would say it's a small minority Mm -hmm. i think it can feel like it's a lot of people yeah in the sense that they they go pretty hard when they go hard. Right. But I don't think, especially at scale, I don't think it's a majority or yeah. even close. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I agree, but I feel like, yeah, they yell hard. <laughs> it's like the they online hate, right? It can come yeah. from a few people, but it feels like the world's against you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In your experience, has most of it been verbal attacks of racism? Have you experienced a lot of it here? Uh, yeah, yeah, mostly verbal. And that's also kind of the stories I hear from other people as well. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah. If if there, if there were violent attacks that were really known, I don't, I don't know of them, but uh, I, I'd be really concerned for all of our safety. I, I, that scares me a lot to, to think that that has happened or that will happen or it is happening now. Um, I don't know really how to respond as um, if I knew that was happening um, here and I just lost that sense of safety. I don't I feel like that would that would just be really hard to just be to just do daily things to just be with you know with my family and um my son who was born in all of this he he's 10 months old now so I was pregnant with him when when this all started and to think about like his safety um, just by somebody looking different 
sparks this violence in someone else. Like, I just don't, I don't know how I, how I would keep going. It'd be very, very hard. So um, I know a lot of other people have probably experienced that or seen that across the world and across the country. And the fact that they can keep going and push forward is, um, I have mad respect for them because I think I would just break down ultimately. Mostly, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how much of it is actual hate against race and how much of it is, is just hate that gets targeted in that mm. way. Racism, right? I, I wonder mm. if this, I mean, in this particular instance, right, if this is actual Asian hate or if this is just a bunch of people who have hate mm -hmm. and because COVID came out of China, mm -hmm. that's their go-to. Okay, mm -hmm. now we can direct this hate towards Asians because they, they started COVID and now they're going to get it. They're mm -hmm. going to get what they did. Mm -hmm. And if this would have come out of Brazil, then they would have targeted Brazilians. I wonder how much um, of that is just this internal hate that some people have yeah. and they just direct that wherever the wind blows. I think in the U.S., well, yes, I think they're absolutely those people that are just um, spiteful people. And I wish them lots of love and joy in their life. Someone should get them a puppy or something or not. I don't know. Um, or have them run a marathon. I don't think they have a lot of hate after that. No, you definitely don't. Um, yeah, I, um, let's see. Kind of a loaded statement. Well, <laughs> well, it's loaded because it's not just, uh, it's not isolated to one person. And mm -hmm. that's what I feel like was the issue with the expulsion, the Chinese expulsion as well, is that they were like, it's you. It's you're the group of people you're that the did this. You're the problem. When ultimately it's way bigger than all of us. We are all products of our culture and our government and the country that we live in. And this is above us. This has um, – Chinese and Asian people have been discriminated against in this culture, in this country since – the gold mines since the 1850s um, when they became a competition for jobs, a competition for gold. And that has seen many forms over the last 150 years, but it's always kind of come back to the same thing. And I think race and discrimination is deep rooted in um, the competition of life and that by putting somebody else down, you're able to get further. And maybe that was the case when you're out in the gold mines and there's only so much gold and you can only, you know, be as rich as your resources. But I feel like in the world we live in today, we have means that we can lift each other up while lifting ourselves up at the same time. And so I think that this is, a national generational trauma that we continuously live through and that until we break those cycles, we're just going to keep doing these things that, again, could be completely inherent. We don't even know we're doing them. And it's just what we've been taught and what kind of just runs through us. But we need to we need to have these conversations and air things out and talk about things or we're just going to keep doing what we've always done. 
Um, because after the Chinese, I mean, even while the Chinese were strongly discriminated against in our country, the Japanese Americans were sent to internment camps. Um, it's, it's very easy, again, to be like, you look different. Your culture is different. You must be the problem. It's, it's, their, it's your fault kind of thing. Um, well, and with the Japanese specifically, they had the smoking gun, right? You could just say, oh, well, Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. we, we have to do it. We mm-hmm. don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. We don't know if you're a spy or not, so mm, we got to round up everybody. Yeah, that is just this whole ethnic cleansing kind of theme that keeps happening throughout our history is um, is really interesting. Like, why is it that non-white groups can be rounded up or can be, you know, enslaved or can be... Well, you know, even very... white groups, right? You have the Jews, which are the prime example of... It, it can happen to anybody. Yes. It could, but it feels easier to do it when somebody looks much different from you. And it's easy to just look at them and say, you look different. Um, go in that pen. <laughs> you know, go, you know, it's a... Uh, it could, um, but it hasn't to well, everyone. History-wise, it has. It's happened mm-hmm. a lot. I mean... the. Uh... Romans wiping out the Celts. I mean, you have historical examples of of every race prosecuting every other race and including their own people, right? Yeah, it just, I, think... I think in the historical lens of the past hundred years, mm. taking away the Jewish example, it has been. And I think the hard part in that is our country specifically, we are so diverse that mm. you can really, if you have an issue, you can point to someone that doesn't look like you so that you can direct your anger back to that theme of anger right mm-hmm. you can say oh okay well i didn't get this job because of me i got this job because of you know of this these yeah. people are taking these jobs you hear that with mexicans especially nowadays is oh they're the reason why i can't get this job mm-hmm. they're coming into this country and they're taking everybody's job yeah yeah it's definitely um we're seeing that happen again yeah um I'm uh, I'm kind of I'm curious though like what what do you think now that the Chinatown project has been kind of out in the open um, how it will change if it will kind of impact our community um I think it already has had an impact because mm-hmm. here I am sitting I didn't know about the project mm-hmm. you know two weeks ago and now I do I think that's an impact Mm -hmm. and I don't think I'm alone in feeling that I think a lot of people are learning about this Mm. I think I didn't get a chance to go to the event unfortunately I had a podcast rescheduled a Saturday so I I missed (laughs) it I really wanted to see that talk you guys were putting on as well yeah but I think outreach programs like that I think all of that has an impact Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a downside to unearthing parts of history that yeah might be painful to look at but I think when we forget those moments, that's when we repeat them. Mm, I -hmm. think history is a lesson of the good things that we do and the mistakes we make. And you have to continuously look back so that you know you're not walking down a path and repeating a mistake. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. And Mm -hmm. so I think only good things can come from doing this. I think it'd be cool to have a Chinatown again. I mean, Mm -hmm. you go to San Francisco, that's where everybody goes, right? Is you go visit Chinatown Mm because it's a cool, you get to see the culture, you get to, be immersed in it, try new foods. Mm-hmm. I think 
I think diversity is fantastic because you get to see other perspectives. That's all I do here is bring on people that have different perspectives than me. Yeah. So that's yeah. right up my alley. Is yeah. So um, you've done quite a few episodes of this podcast. We're getting though. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's gonna be what it's gonna be my second year of doing this here in a week oh, on the fourteenth. Wow. Not a week. A couple Congratulations. days. Congratulations. Tomorrow. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's been fun. It's been very fun. Yeah, and so, um, kind of, how did how did it get started? COVID, for oh. sure. COVID was a big mm-hmm. factor in this. I I've been asked this question a lot, and I don't ever know quite how to answer it. So I'm going to give you the spiel that I've been kind of leaning on right now. <laughs> I had flown back from school because they were shutting the school down. I was going to school on the East Coast, so I had to come back home. Mm. And I had been on a flight with someone who might have had COVID. And before I found that out, I had been in town for a couple of days before I found that out. And I had gone and hung out with friends. Mm-hmm. I had a buddy whose girlfriend at the time, now wife, was pregnant. And I had hung out with them. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of days go by and I find out, oh, I could have been on that plane. And this Uh-oh. was back in the beginning. This was like March 2020. Mm-hmm. And so I thought people were just going to start dying. Once, once it sunk in that, oh, COVID is real and this mm-hmm. is going to be a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I felt so bad. So I, I basically didn't leave my house for like the next three months. Oh. And that's not good. Because yeah. all I was doing was consuming social media. I was watching the news. It was just all this toxic input. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like who I was becoming because of that. Mm-hmm. I started spiraling. and I was, I was not someone that I would want to talk to. Mm-hmm. And I was stuck with myself. So that, that became a real problem. <laughs> And I think my motivation in doing this was I needed to get out of that bubble. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that and something I've always loved doing is talking to people. Mm. And so the podcast was kind of a lifeline. Someone threw me a buoy and said, okay, if you take this, you can, you can pull yourself out of that. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just my own bias of, of pumping up the story a little bit, but that that's where I lean on now. Looking back, that's what I think really was the cat. Cause I had thought about doing this, since high school, I'd always thought, oh, man, it'd be cool back back then, which was five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. I thought oh, it would be cool to do a podcast and talk to people. And then I almost started one my sophomore year of college with a buddy of mine. And we had been looking into equipment and talking about it and nothing really came of it. And then thanks to COVID, it was just kind of the catalyst of being thrown in that pit and saying, okay, I need to, I need to climb out. Kind of like with the marathon yeah. of where I just, just, I need to do something. Uh-huh. I need to pull myself out. Uh-huh. And now we're here. It started on my, on a pool table at my parents' house. Okay. And then you're kind of seeing like the third iteration of the podcast now. Yeah. So it's, it's getting there. You have like so a full setup here. Yeah. I'm pretty it impressed. looks a little sketchy from the outside. Cause you're like, <laughs> this is just, I mean, as you know, you went to the wrong building, right? <laughs> But then you get inside and people say, okay, this is this is kind of cool. It's mm-hmm. not – I've had it called the murder shed. I had a couple of people on that were like, mm. we were wondering if we were going to die when we went inside. <laughs> and then we walked in and it was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Uh, but, I dropped my husband a pin before I left. Yeah, over. right? Uh, <laughs> if you don't hear from me for a couple hours, you need to send somebody over. Yeah, it's been fun. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I think it's – I keep saying that it's kind of a selfish pursuit in the sense that – I take so much out of this mm-hmm. that even if people weren't listening and it was just us talking without the cameras and without the lights, mm-hmm. I would keep doing it because I get to pull something from it. Like Sydney, yeah. how we might have never met yeah. and we might not be having this conversation otherwise. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's, I don't know. I love that so much. Mm-hmm. 
What are some things that you've learned? Whew. Um, well, I learned that Eureka had a Chinatown. That's a big one. <laughs> no, I've learned a lot. I've, I've had on people from such a diverse variety of backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I've had on burlesque dancers. I've had on distillers. I've had on people in the cannabis industry, mm -hmm. uh, webcam models, mm -hmm. uh, prostitutes, just, just a wide variety of people that may have never entered my life mm -hmm. if I hadn't done the podcast. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I mean, I'm sure you get that outreach doing, being involved with this project, especially you meet people that you never thought you would meet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what a big part of, um, just this last year has been is just creating community and bringing community together. I think that's the most important thing that we've done ultimately. Like, yes, and that can come from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. In, in many different forms. Um, but it's really, I think that's really energizing and to see that there are other people out there and you may have come from a different place, but you can find common ground on something. You can talk about something for an hour <laughs> and you would be surprised how much more you have in common with someone than than the differences that are there. Mm -hmm. How do you find, or how I guess, what sparks you to reach out to people? Just if I think what they're doing is interesting, or if I think they're interesting, or mm -hmm. if I think we could have a good conversation, I, I really reach out to pretty much anybody anybody that's willing to talk to me that's pretty much the <laughs> the only thing are you willing to come on the podcast okay we can talk i don't have a a set checklist or standards of okay they need to meet these boxes mm -hmm. just if i think we could have a good conversation or like this i think the project is interesting i'll reach out and say mm -hmm. hey i would love to have you on the podcast mm -hmm. and then they come on or they don't come on and we move on to the next person mm -hmm. you could like dream big on what your podcast could be what do you what do you think it would be in terms of uh, like end game for it sure i it's a good question i think it would just be this mm -hmm. exactly what i'm doing the only thing i'm i'm working towards i guess is getting this I I guess I'm gonna say it this way, big enough to the point where guests would want to come on, and mm -hmm. guests would reach out and say, "Hey, I would love to come on." Mm -hmm. That's my only goal. Because mm -hmm. if it can get to that point, then the people will want to come on and talk. You yeah. know? Did would you ever branch out of like humble? Because because you're mostly bringing in local people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well. It's not it's not quite big enough where people want to fly <laughs> in to do it. I mean, we're working on it. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to be moving here in, I don't know, I've been saying this for a while, in the next couple months to a year, and then the, I would move the studio with me, and so then that oh. would be my outreach. Oh. But yeah, we're not, yeah, people aren't really flying in just, just yet well, to do the podcast. maybe they'll zoom in. Yeah. In the... <laughs> well, the, I've done a few Zoom ones. Okay. They're not that great. Oh. Zoom is not the best for a podcast just because of the audio or because it's too of... impersonal uh, i don't know it could just be me getting mm -hmm. into it but there's a different feel when you're in the studio like this mm -hmm. and i get to sit across from you and look at you and read your body language and you get to read mm -hmm. my body language and we're actually talking to each other yeah zoom it's almost like a lecture mm -hmm. and i'm 
it doesn't turn out as well. Yeah. At least from my perspective. I don't know about the audience. No, but, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you guys, in doing your meetings on Zoom, you can relate to that a little bit. It get it can get a little hectic. I had to like announce to people that I was like eight months pregnant. Because I was like, you don't know this, but like I have this giant. Yeah, you can't tell, but I am very pregnant right now. And um, I should probably let you guys know that before I give birth. So, um, yeah, I get that. It is nice to be in person. Um, but it is nice to also be able to talk to anybody anywhere. That is that is mm-hmm. one of the good things, right? Is mm-hmm. you can reach out, especially with Zoom, you can reach out and touch anybody mm-hmm. all over the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is cool, though. Um, and I do feel like there's something so powerful about having conversations um, that I just don't think that we have done enough of. Even before the pandemic i feel like we're all just in our own lanes just doing our own thing and in some way we've had to stop and look at each other you well get- <laughs> I, and i think the political landscape today is causing people to mm-hmm. to pause mm. and say okay we need to take a hard look at the direction this country is going because yeah there's a lot going on in the world you yeah. got ukraine you got Roe versus wade there's a lot that's bubbling up right now mm-hmm. that is going you're not going to be able to ignore it for much longer no definitely not um yeah so are you announcing where you're moving to or oh no that's not this oh, isn't okay. a reveal podcast okay. No. okay okay i was thinking maybe la but boulder also sounds nice so i'm all over the place i could end up back east again i don't know Mm -hmm. we'll see Mm -hmm. but that would be my in terms of outreach to new people in a new area that would be what i'm leaning towards to get on new guests yeah yeah um are you from around here uh no i'm originally so i've been here for since 2018 um i am originally from detroit michigan okay yeah lived a few places since then um and i moved up after living in the bay area for a few years um and working with a cannabis farm up here oh nice yeah um but i really moved up here because we started coming up here just to like get away from the crowds from from the bay area and um nice change of pace yeah it was really nice and so then when i um when I got that job, I was doing sales and marketing like across the state, but the farm is up here. And I was like, well, that's where I want to be. Um, and I made that happen. Um, and that was really cool. Kind of just like moving where you vacation in some ways, but then in the last few years, transitioning it into my home. Um, because I think it's hard when you first move somewhere that you only go to you know for weekends or for short trips you're like I love it up here and something draws me up here but I don't exactly know why and then you get up here and I think a lot of that changes when you actually like live day to day somewhere and um, you're kind of like okay, thrust now, into it yeah I kind of need to find like my bearings a little bit so that took a couple years find um, your place in the in the city right yeah yeah I think the Chinatown project was a big part of that too, because really how it started was I was looking for an APA community up here. Um, APA it, being um, Asian Pacific, Asian Pacific American. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, um, it's a shortened version. Like it, I was looking for an Asian American community up here um, because I kind of had always had one since college, and um, 
I felt like I was kind of like missing my people in some way. So that's how I ended up reaching out to Hoppy, um, which is the group that kind of connected me to everyone else. And kind of we all got the ball rolling that way. Um, again, through Instagram. <laughs> those DMs. Uh, yeah, those DMs. Coming yeah. in clutch. <laughs> so um, that's kind of where it started. It was just like, I just want to meet other Asian Americans. Um, and let's see. And I was pregnant at that time. So I was really thinking, too, about, you know, I'm going to have a family soon. Like, I want to make sure my child um, has a community, too, of people that have a shared culture and um, that look like him. And I can say 100% found that. Um, I have now Silas, my son, has all these aunties and uncles that he, you know, you know, I have no family here by blood, but I feel like in ways I found my Humboldt family and my Eureka family. And that's, um, that's really cool. There were three Chinatown babies that were born in the last year that were part of the Chinatown project. So he even has cousins that, you know, are part of this too. And um, I think it's really cool that in his first year, he had like a Chinese New Year's experience, even though it was like four months overdue. It was weather and COVID where it was postponed since February um, to May. But he has, you know, he was able to experience a celebration of his culture. And he will have that every year for his life. Um, and we didn't miss a year. And that's just like I just feel like really happy about that um, and just makes things, if I ever do decide to leave, it would make it that much harder to do that um, because I do feel like we found our sense of place and belonging um, through the Eureka Chinatown project and just over the years of just getting out and meeting people and talking to people. You said you, did you grow up in Chicago? I grew up in Detroit, Detroit. Um, but I did live in Chicago for okay. a little bit. Yeah, um, mostly grew up in Detroit. My family still lives there. Did you have an Asian American community in Detroit? Not really. Um, I was kind of considered like the token Asian for most of my childhood. So it wasn't until I got to college. I went to Michigan State and I found the Asian American community there and got involved and did a lot of student organizations um, and that was just, that is where I feel like I found purpose and meaning in what I do. Um, so I've been kind of like organizing groups, um, cultural groups now for quite a few years. Uh, but then, I, you know, after you graduate college, then you kind of, you get out into the real world. And then I moved out to Vegas. I was, a um, was a hospitality business major. So, um, Went out there for a few years and worked and got some experience. And Vegas is a hard place. You don't really have it's it is hard to find community in Vegas. You just have so many people that are coming and going so quickly. No one really stays for a long time. People are there to make money and, and get go. out. Yeah, yeah. And it's not a sustainable place if there's no water source. There's no it's uh, yeah. You're in the desert. You're in the desert. It is it is hot. It is oh man. Um yeah, so I was happy to leave Vegas, 
even now people are like, let's plan a trip to Vegas. I'm like, let's not. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I've had my fill. I'm yeah, okay. I'm good. I'm good on that. But it was fun. It was like, you know, the first few years after college. So it was kind of like. Perfect spot. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect spot for that. Um, and then I moved over to Chicago for a bit. And the thing about Chicago is it's like about four, five hours away from the metro detroit area so it's kind of like a good weekend trip or where a lot of people move to to find jobs after they graduate so we actually had um, my husband and i had a lot of friends that still live there so i think we had um kind of like our college asian american community there that was kind of removed from michigan into chicago so that was fun um it was really uh it's just good to be around like your people. Um, but then, you know, we knew, I think we always know at some point we're going to end up back in Michigan, cause, Michigan, cause that's where our parents are. Um, and they're getting older and, you know, go be these, close to them. Yeah. The mo- I mean, those moments are really important. So, and now especially we- where you have a newborn son. Yeah. Yeah. That's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, especially with COVID and everything. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, we want them to have those moments with our grand with their grandparents and we we didn't really have that so um you know being around family is good so you know we know we're gonna end up back there at some point um and we know once we get there we might not leave i don't know um it's hard to leave once you're there but we want to we wanted to come back out to california out west and like really explore our opportunities and um I think we did that, um, you know, but you moved to the Bay Area and it's, I mean, it is so rich with cultural diversity. Um, you get a little spoiled by the food and being able to walk down the street and see lots of people that look like you. And then um, and then you kind of move up here, you know, mostly I think we moved up here for the connection to the outdoors um and again kind of mostly just visiting before we really kind of experienced this place and and again we moved up here and then we were like whoa this is a culture shock for us because we're used to kind of being in bigger cities where you just have accessibility to kind of cultural shops and foods and and communities and here we're like it's not really there isn't really a community here um, but it does leave a lot of room for growth and space to create one. Um, and I think the greater community has been welcoming in that. And that's been, uh, I think, very fulfilling and knowing that you kind of help to grow that here and grow that community. And hopefully it will continue on. Um, but, you know, as long as we're here, we're raising our kid here. And that's really cool. Um, and they're gonna they're gonna know their culture um, and be able to be around friends who are family and people who love them and want to raise them up and want to see them succeed. So uh, it's been a big transition year <laughs> for us. I mean, definitely becoming parents has been a big thing, but also just with how embedded we've we've put ourselves into um, into this place. And what we've done has been um, a big change too. But definitely, you know, for the better. When you went away to college, were you 
anticipating joining an Asian American club or were you searching for that community or you just mm-hmm. kind of stumbled into it? Um, I had kind of known about it because I had an older brother and sister that had went to Michigan State as well and had kind of been involved in the Asian American clubs, but not to the extent that I was. So I had kind of, I did kind of know about them going into school and they, and then, you know, it took me like a year or so to find my footing um, and find the people who, who, who cheered me on. Um, and it did end up being the Asian American community. And um, once I finally got kind of involved with them, they also very much became like my social circle. You know, they became my, my home away from home too and um I think that's hard for people to find I moved you know I've lived a few different places as we just kind of talked about kind of bounced around but if you don't find somewhere that feels like home it doesn't it's really hard to stay there and I think a lot of people feel that too when they come up to Humboldt um I don't know just from people I met in the last year because we were doing like walking tours and things like that through the Chinatown project I met a lot of people that had moved up from the Bay Area like whether they're recent grads or um just people looking for work uh and they didn't stay very long which was really sad because i like got to know so many great people and then they're like yeah i'm i'm moving back i'm moving moving away and um i you know obviously there are people buying houses here so some people are staying in some capacity but um in my experience during covid i think a lot of people did move up here and it could have been because of covid too with a lot of things being shut down you don't have all those events and fun things to do, and it you don't really get a true sense of the place um, before have before I guess making your mind up. But um, I think that there's you know I think there's a wide range of people. But uh, but what about you? You are you're living on the East Coast. Do you feel like you went out there for school? Yeah, yeah. I I bounced around a little bit. I've been to a couple different colleges i transferred around okay trying to find my spot i guess Mm -hmm. um and i ask that because you hear this idea of finding finding your people and finding people that look like you how important do you think that is um i think it's incredibly important um i think it instills a sense of confidence um that you is sometimes hard to come by um, when you have to kind of look for it on your own. Um, I think there's a lot of strength that comes from being in a community with a shared culture and shared lived experiences. Um, You know, I think it's, you know, when you, when you find your people, when you have your group of friends, when you have, you know, inside jokes and, (laughs) you know, that, that sense of, familiarity that just makes you feel like you're you're in a safe place um I think that's it's incredibly important to your well-being I don't think it for everyone it means that it's somebody that looks like you it could they could look like you in many different ways um but you know they have shared interests or they have uh there's something that's in common with them and I think with uh racial discrimination a lot of us feel like we have a lot of uh, things in common because of how we've been treated. 
because of the culture that we're in. And it's kind of helped to shape who we are, you know, as people today. Because I think Asian Americans today are much different than the communities that came before us and the immigrant communities that came before us, where most of us, some of us are immigrants, some of us are first, second generation. And that in itself is, you know, a um, something that brings people together. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you feel like, how do you find your community? I've always felt like a man without a country. <laughs> That's how I've always felt. I felt like I had to craft my own community. And I think part of that has been doing this mm -hmm. and reaching out to different people and building my community that way. But mm -hmm. I've always heard the sentiment, or not always, but you frequently hear the sentiment from, I guess you would say minority populations of, of finding value in people that look like you through skin complexion mm -hmm. and i've never really understood that mm -hmm. and i don't know if it's because i feel like a man without a country so i don't put value on that that visual element of okay they look like me so this is a safe place mm -hmm. i get it through culture through shared experiences in that way mm -hmm. i think i attribute it more to hard work in my mm -hmm. in my personal view uh, that's how i've bonded with people is Okay, can you work hard? Okay, well I can oh, work hard too, uh -huh. so we can mm -hmm. we can bond through that. Mm -hmm. But that idea of finding your people and finding people that look like you—I've never really understood that. Mm. I get it; I mm -hmm. get where it comes from, but I don't pass a surface level. I don't understand. Mm. I think that's always kind of well. I think that maybe where things are getting lost um, is that it's not that any person that looks like you is going to be your best friend. It's that there's this draw that happens when there's somebody that looks like you. Um, especially, I think there's this unspoken kind of culture uh, that I especially feel up here where there's not a lot of Asian Americans, um, that when you see another Asian American person in the grocery store or something like you give them a nod like you're just like hey i see you i recognize you you know we're here we're doing it and i think there's just kind of this unspoken culture that that is the case it's hard with me because i think some people don't think that i'm asian american because i don't i i'm um i uh so my mother is chinese and my father is west indian and so having being biracial i think i kind of just Slide people, under the radar. Yeah, people are a little confused as to, you know, what ethnicity I am. But um, so I just smile at everyone. You know, I'm like, hey, hey. And they're like, who is this woman yeah, that's this talking to me? This is crazy. What is happening? So basically what I'm saying, it's my breeze unspoken rule that I just talk to, you know, and smile at <laughs> at people of color. Because, I mean, I it's, it's, um, it's a lot of just little things throughout the day and in our culture that kind of build um that make it very apparent that we look different again it's it's not it doesn't mean that somebody has to come up to me on the street and hit me to m make discrimination that apparent like it could just be very little things um like microaggressions microaggressions sure do you, yeah what do you think of microaggressions i think they're inherent i try not to blame people for them because i feel like i don't know maybe i'm just not that kind of person that i would ever like 
voice my opinion about who they are and what they're doing to them. Somebody I have no idea who they are. So maybe it's a personality type. Maybe it's generational learned on you know biases i i don't know i don't know where what what compels them um what compels a person to do what they do but i will say from the person who has received them uh it's those little like stings that really stick with you and somehow you know can reach your core um I don't want to harden myself so much that nothing nothing gets in, but also also nothing gets out. I want to be a person who feels and can live, you know, fluidly throughout this this world. Um, but it's <laughs> I mean, I don't know what compels people to do what they do ultimately. I I don't love them, if that's what you're asking. I don't really know how to respond to uh, <laughs> what. I don't know. How do you feel about microaggressions? What do you? Well, first, what do you? When you hear the word microaggressions, what do you think of? What comes to mind? I think um, that somebody has put a name on something that has happened to people for a long time. That that is, it is. Uh, it's something that I've been experiencing since I've been a little girl, and I didn't realize what was happening then and now i can look back and be like that's what that was that's what you know and um does an experience come to mind um yeah many experiences come to mind um i mean there's there's so there's there's such a wide variety of kind of what you receive um i've experienced anything from um you know, there are things that people don't even in, intentionally mean to be bad. That's that's a, that's what I think the majority of microaggressions are. Is that there's no bad intent to them. They're just people just speaking. You know, but um, listening. There was a couple women the other day that walked by my son, and they were just like. Oh, look at his little slanty eyes. Aren't they so cute? And like, they were talking to each other and like, and you know, they're just like these little things where obviously they didn't mean anything bad by it. Like they were, they were honestly probably complimenting him, but it was in their eyes they were. But to me, that's a, that's a burn. Like you just, why do his eyes, ha why do his eyes have to be slanty to be cute? You know, like why, for, why do we even still use that term? I don't know. But you know, it's just, um, there's little things like that. Um, there's, I think, again, being like the token Asian growing up that you get lots of um, just like stereotypical things thrown at you like, oh, well, you're Chinese and you're Indian. Like you should be really good at math and science and books and all things. And I'm like, sorry to you know, <laughs> disappoint here, but you know, that's not what I'm really good at, you know, and it's, um, and people look at you different when you're not. And, um, there was this, I wouldn't even call this a microaggression. This is just straight up discrimination. But in college, I was in a, like a huge lecture hall, 500 people econ class. And we were sitting down to take an exam. And the professor starts walking around and 
just kind of like approaches groups of Asian students sitting together and makes them separate. Like he makes them get up and move. And and like we're watching this and I'm sitting there with a group of Asian friends and we're like, what is happening here? Like it's it's very clear. He's like very clearly walking around to groups of Asian students. Just Asian students? Just Asian students and making them separate and sit other places. This is like a 500 person lecture hall. It is crowded. Like there's nowhere for people to move. And he does it like three or four times and finally comes up to the group of me and my friends and he's like, uh, you guys need to like move. And I'm like, I'm not moving. <laughs> and he's like, no, you need to move. And I'm like, well, mm, it's not happening. Uh, why are you making groups of Asian students move? Like, it's very clear. Everyone's like saying they're murmuring, like what's happening? And he's like, well, the Chinese students, they, they speak in Chinese and they cheat off of each other. And I just like... I didn't even know how to respond to him. I just looked at him and I'm like, we're not moving. So I sat there and my friends got up and moved. And I'm like, you guys are, that's fine. Um, we got to take this test. And like, you're sitting there the whole test. And I'm just like fuming. Like I, like, I can't believe what has just happened. I can't believe that a tenured professor is able to uh, make these kinds of judgments on students and to ultimately do what he has obviously been doing for a long time. Um, this wasn't his first test he's given out. It's not his first rodeo. You can see that he has like really, this is premeditated. He's thought about this. Had, he, um, had you witnessed him doing that before that test? That must have been our first test. Be, or I, no, I didn't really, maybe I didn't notice it before. Like, Did he do it after? Um, that's a good question because after that, like things really got, uh, really heated, um, because we went and we reported it and, um, and he was kind of like under an internal investigation for a bit. And, and so I think because of that, he didn't do it during the rest of the semester we had, but we only had like a handful of tests that semester. So, um, I don't think we really got to see the long play on how it played out. And ultimately nothing happened to him because he was tenured. He like barely got a, you know, slap on the hand and was just kind of like, don't do that again. That's it. But um, that is like an experience where, you know, if I am not being affected by what that professor's doing, if I'm, you know, just a student if I'm a non-Asian American student in that class and I'm not told to move my seats or I don't see what's happening or I see what's happening, it doesn't bother me, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to be able to take my tests fine. But for me, and I can see a lot of other people that were in that class, whether they were Asian or not, they were deeply affected by that. Like my hand was shaking the entire time. I didn't even think I finished the test. Um, but it's those... What I think about microaggressions is that whether it's something that obvious like that or something more nuanced, those little moments deeply affect the person that they're being directed at, um, whether they show it or not. It's going it sticks with them. It it affects them in some way. And um, it took me a long time to be able to take all those little moments and microaggressions that had been that stung me to my core and pull out all those stingers and say, you mean nothing to me. You can no longer hurt me anymore because I will not allow somebody else's 
perspective on me affect me anymore. Um, but that took a really, really long time. Um, and I still think I'm working through that. Um, and I still, it doesn't mean, I mean, I still think if somebody is to say something to me, it still, it, w it will affect me to some degree. So, Were you allowed to talk while taking that test? No. It was a silent test? Yeah. Well, then his argument goes out the window, right? Because even if they were speaking in another language, they're still talking. So you. No. Yeah. It. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's. Yeah. It, it, there were a lot of faults. Um, he had no reasoning. I mean, he had no grounds to stand on for what he was doing. Um, it was very clear that it was just bias. It was maybe something that he had experienced. And he was projecting that on to people that look like those people that he had experienced, you know, had that initial experience with. You know, maybe once there was a group of Chinese students that were talking during a test and whether or not they were cheating, I don't know. But you can't go around and say, because you look like that group of people that I saw that were doing this, that means you're doing the same thing or that you should be treated differently because of what I've seen, you know, that group of people do. And um, I mean, that's what the expulsion was. The expulsion were a, a handful of maybe unruly people that were that did have a shootout. There were gangs that were shooting out. You know, that's one thing. But there was a whole community of people that were not involved in any of that. And why do they have to be uprooted from their homes, lose lots of lots of property and, you know, things that they owned um, and have to restart somewhere else? Um, you know, I don't I don't think that's fair in any way. Um, but I think that, yeah, I don't know. Have you ever experienced a microaggression? I don't know. I, I don't know if I believe in microaggressions. Okay. I'm still trying to figure out yeah. my <laughs> stance it's, on those. Okay. I wouldn't say what, what that professor did. I wouldn't classify that as no, a microaggression. That I seems just That's... like him being an idiot and, yeah. and making a poor choice. Mm -hmm. There's no... I, it, there would be a little more basis for that if you were allowed to talk during the test and he doesn't speak Chinese and he's like, okay, you all have to speak. I would, I would be more lenient to understand his side. Mm -hmm. But the fact that nobody can talk, well, then if anybody's making a noise, you would say, okay, no talking. Like there's no reason to separate anybody then. Have everybody sit wherever they want. Mm -hmm. But as far as microaggressions go, I haven't really figured out my stance. Mm -hmm. I'm inclined not to believe them. But I've had, I've only ever talked to one other person on the podcast about them. And her example was that, I'm going to butcher this, but by my memory, her example was that she went to, I think it was Pearson's, maybe the lumberyard, and tried to get a job. Mm -hmm. And they didn't hire her, but they hired her brother. And she said that was a microaggression. Uh, is it though? Is it? Hmm. I feel like there might be more to that story, but, um, or that she had, I think she had applied there. I don't know if it was mm -hmm. specifically to the lumber yard. Mm -hmm. She had applied and then her brother applied a little while later and he got hired and she didn't. 
that was the ex- that was the extent of the story that she told me if my memory is correct okay so i guess it, okay so if we're going to go back to like defining microaggressions, microaggressions <laughs> um what I like the epitome of what I think of as a microaggression towards Asian Americans is when you're out in public and um, you're standing in line at the grocery store and somebody just turns around and just is like, where where are you from? And you're like, Michigan. Like, yeah, but where are you really from? Detroit. <laughs> um and you go down that rabbit hole and then they're just like, you, well, you don't belong here. Go back to your country. Or they skip all the questions to begin with and they're just like, go back to your country. Go back to where you belong. Yeah, but that's yeah. not a microaggression. That's just them being a piece of shit. That Right? Is that? But I think <laughs> I, I feel like microaggression has become this all-encompassing term in the sense that if you feel slighted in any way, mm. that is now a microaggression. Mm. Because that story, if someone asks where you where you're from, I could understand that being frustrating mm-hmm. based on how you look. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I would count that as a microaggression. Mm. And then the rest of that, where they say go back to your country, that's just them being a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. That's not a microaggression. That's outright shitty behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think nowadays, whenever somebody has their feelings hurt a little bit, that has now become the catch-all of oh, it's just. That was a microaggression. Hmm. So you're trying to differentiate if the intent of what is being said is meant to hurt somebody or not? No, I don't think you can. I think that's what microaggressions are, is Mm -hmm. you're trying to infer that person's intent, which Mm -hmm. we can't do. You, Mm -hmm. the way you're looking at me right now, I could say Mm -hmm. that is offensive to me. Mm -hmm. That's a microaggression. But I don't know your intent. You're over there sitting listening to what Mm -hmm. i'm saying Mm -hmm. and i think people now are trying to infer everybody's intent and when they do that it's never them assuming or giving the benefit of the doubt that oh this person is you know just maybe having an off day and what they said they didn't mean it that way there's no benefit of doubt it's Mm -hmm. just oh they slighted me Mm -hmm. that was a microaggression Mm -hmm. yeah um I've experienced definitely more subtle um, moments where I think there's just a level of ignorance where they just don't know what your lived experience is. So they're just talking from their point of view. Um, like, can you provide an example of that? I know, I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'm trying to get to the bottom of that. community. <laughs> you don't have to name names. I'm not going to make you put yeah, anybody on blast. Um, I mean, I've had especially older people people that I think that there are a lot of inherent biases towards Asian Americans um, that have kind of have said things that didn't sit well with me not um, saying things like I think in terms of just like talking about the Chinese culture, um, that can't be, I like, I can't really, I can't really remember exactly what they said, but the feeling that I got from it was Chinese culture is very, um, rigid and, um, 
Like talking about like Chinese foot binding, which happened, um, doesn't really happen anymore, but it is when um, young girls, uh, their families would bind their feet. So they'd have like small feet. Because so that was more desirable. More desirable to be married. Um, which the photos of that are horrific have you seen those photos yeah oh my god mm -hmm. your foot starts to curl back up into your heel mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's um it's definitely like a, a crazy kind of idea on what beauty is of that of that day and age um but i've had people kind of talk to me about Sorry, I'm not doing a very good job of explaining because I don't know exactly. I can't remember exactly what she said, but it just talking about Chinese foot binding and how that relates to kind of our our culture today as Chinese Americans and um, I think what I'm just trying to get across is that it's. I think people think that they're just talking about something that's not related to you or that doesn't affect you, and it does. Um, I can't give you an, ex an exact example. I'm sorry, but I just I, – I mean, I feel like because I really try to just, like, deal with these things and let them go and not let them sit with me too long. Um, but my most recent one – like that was kind of the feeling I that I got was this was directed at me and my culture and that affects me. That initially lands on me personally, whether or not that stays with me that way. Um, that's how it kind of, that's how it kind of lands. Like it just is, um, like finger pointing of sorts or finger pointing. Uh, yeah, like, like pointing this a is finger what at you? you guys do. Like this is what your people do. Othering of sorts. Yeah, but that just ties back into shitty people. Right? Yeah, but isn't so if somebody you... goes up to you and says this is because of your people, that's then be that Maybe that is what they classify as a microaggression. Mm. I don't know. I wouldn't. That's not what I've heard in relation to that. That's yeah. just them being a shitty person. Yeah, I wish I could give you like a really straightforward example. It's probably that you're good that you don't for. know because that does mean yeah, you're you're brushing these off, which is a good. That's probably the well, best way to handle it. I think that's what a lot of things are. Is that it is, you know. I don't know if any one person is horrible to their core, but I think there are moments that are shitty. And maybe you catch people in those moments, but does that warrant what you were saying to me and how you were making me feel? Does that warrant how you treat other people? Um, I think that's what it boils down to is that it's not, not you specifically, but um, you know, when people are kind of throwing shade at people that look different than them why why what compels you to do that um and i and i try not to get lost in their world and why they're doing that 
I try to just move on with my day. And I feel grateful that I am able to do that and that nothing that I have experienced has been physical again, but can't say that many people are that fortunate. Sometimes people just get attacked for no reason. They have no idea what's happening or why. Mm. I guess maybe it's shitty people. <laughs> I would think so. Well, we And we have this weird thin veneer of society that we lean on mm. that because we are in this country and for whatever reason we just expect safety mm -hmm. not taking race out of it we just expect that mm -hmm. we are safe mm -hmm. and we're really not all it takes mm -hmm. is one person to to do something crazy for whatever reason race sure. maybe they just had a shitty day maybe they've had a shitty life Mm -hmm. and they want to lash out mm -hmm. and that's all it takes mm -hmm. and think about how many hundreds of thousands of people you encounter in your lifetime and all it takes is one person right. having one bad day mm -hmm. that just commits an act of violence yeah and i get that um and i definitely think that our culture and our media leans on those oddballs of sorts well because that sells that's that what sells, gets the clicks right? that's that's really interesting nobody likes the happy stories yeah but i also think that there is again this unspoken culture that allows that so i'm not there's definitely an extreme side of things you know as you're saying like the really shitty people that are just rotten to their core I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about people that are probably decent people and they still will say things that are offensive to other people without necessarily knowing that what they're saying is offensive. And that is, um, excuse me, that is where I think that is rooted in our country's culture that it is not something that is just isolated to one person that it's been deep rooted in their family and in for generations that there are these stigmas against Chinese Americans or against people of color and it's not their fault it's just passed down and but sometimes couldn't you make the argument that it's rooted in human culture um i maybe would have until recently um just in the last you know year or so i've just trying to educate more around educate myself more on the historical context about where the idea of race comes from and um i feel like i'm still kind of you know trying to understand it myself but i'm starting to see more of race as a cultural construct um and that it's it's not really that inherent for us to group ourselves by race specifically um, and that's more of a, it was more intentional and 
now it's more of a um and uh a learned behavior of sorts what what leads you to that um so again i'm not gonna peg myself as a historian here nobody's gonna i nobody's feel like gonna we keep going back one. into but that's a pretty that when you this, say but... that i feel like you're insinuating that it's a learned experience in the sense of like colonialism in terms of america and the slave trade that's what I, I feel like we're dancing around. Yeah. Well, I think like, so if you think about like w- how the white race came to be, there is no country of whites where other ethnicities are based around the country of origin. And the white race is kind of constructed to um, be... It was constructed to be what it is, I feel like, in a sense of um, to help gain more power um, and to gain more um, strength as a community. And so, like, kind of learning a little bit more about how that was put together um, and the reasons why is, I think, just kind of opening my eyes a little bit more to what is this thing that we called race? Who did, who said, <laughs> who made the, who, where did this come from? Um, and why do we do the things we do? And I think that's where just, where we're at in terms of um, just our, our country just kind of growing. And like we were talking about earlier, that we have all these different um, things bubbling up. I think this is the time where we stop and we just stop trying to do so much and just listen and learn and just like absorb for a minute, listen to each other, listen to what's been done from the past, listen to why it's been done that way. It's not necessarily that we have to be doing all the time. I think this is a moment of pause because all these things are coming up and we just have to, we've been, as a country, we have been going now for hundreds of years and have we ever stopped as a culture and said, why have we been doing the things we have been doing? Why are some things like, what is outdated? What can we kind of rethink in ways? Um, And I feel like that's still, I just think that's where we've kind of come to. Um, So I'm not saying I have any, any one answer for you to, you know, to rule the world, but it's, uh, I think it's just, just trying to, you know, wrap my head around. But what is that? Because that's a big, that's a big statement. The idea of the white race being constructed around power. Mm-hmm. What, what, what leads you to that? How did you get to that conclusion? Um, just kind of just learnings in in how um how things have been constructed, how our legal system has been constructed, how our culture has been constructed. It's, um, I think it's about asking questions of why and how right now. And I, and again, I feel like I'm still kind of in that. And I think, you know, a lot of people are just kind of asking questions. Um, So do you think that white people invented the concept of race? I don't know if it was necessarily white people. I think it's a good chance 
I think that race was constructed to gain power over others. By any demographic wielding that. Um, yeah, who created it? Uh, you know, I don't know if I can answer that, but I think in in general, when I think about, I don't know, maybe human tendencies, but it's the easiest way I feel like to gain power over somebody else is say, hey, you look different than me. You're inferior than me. I am the superior being. Um, and I think when you boil that down, it's, I think it comes down to what is race and how did we get here? But I think that mm-hmm. comes from, that takes place in many forms, right? Sure. I think I've seen mm-hmm. a ton of different races be racist. I think, I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. it's human nature to look at another person and especially if they're different then you use that as a weakness mm-hmm. and say, okay, this is why I'm better than you because you don't look like me. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that there's something that's innate in us that has driven us to where we are. Um, and I think it's kind of just sitting down and sitting with ourselves. We know how hard that is. <laughs> just sit with ourselves and be with ourselves and um, and ask those hard questions. And that's just kind of where I'm at. I don't... Um, that was that yeah, statement just caught me off guard. I'm still thinking about the white yeah. race being constructed around power. I don't think I fully know what that means. You know, and I think I'm still learning that too. So that's still kind of developing. Because isn't every race in... constructed around power? Isn't power the foundation of pretty much society? I guess you could say every society, everything we know, predicated on power. Yeah, so I guess, um, so you have already mentioned that it's, you know, it happens in a lot of different forms. Racism. Mm, Power. Power. The power struggle happens in a lot of different forms. And um, I feel like race was one of those tools to gain power by another group Um, and developing this concept of race and using that as a tool of power. Yeah. and I'm not saying every single person uses it that way. I'm saying that um, that's, you know, we have a, there's a, there's a history of it. Um, and so I, I feel like that's me peeling back the onion and just being like, I want to know more about that. That's I think I'm trying to dig so hard here mm-hmm. because there's that that sentiment of whenever race comes to mind, it's always a white person perpetrating it against X, whoever mm-hmm. X is. Mm-hmm. But it's always a white person on the end of that that spectrum being the aggravator against Y, mm-hmm. you know? So when you said that statement, I was like, oh, okay, I gotta, we got to dig into that because I, oh. I was trying to understand yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? Do you think that's a safe assumption to make? That when you hear we, racism, normally you're thinking, oh, a white person perpetrated it against the Chinese or against an African-American or against the Mexican. Well, here's the thing um, with the white race is that it's so deeply embedded in our culture that it is the norm, the normal race within our culture that you don't have to, that it is the default 
that um, when you watch movies, the main character is white. Um, pop culture, uh, the main pop stars, we, we live in a white culture. And I'm speaking about America specifically. And, um, and that's not to say that we are not a diverse group of people and that we are not moving towards more inclusion in our culture. I think we are, but primarily for most of America's history, we've been telling a white narrative. Um, and that's just what it is. I don't fault anyone for that. It's, it's what has happened. So um, I do think that when we speak about racism broadly in our country it defaults to the white race against people of color am i saying that racism does not happen across other ethnic groups no but to answer your question are we just defaulting to white people i would say yeah we do but we also default to white people as the main culture in a lot of things we do. But isn't that just because they're the majority in this country? Like if you went to Africa, it's going to be black movie stars and, and black I'm talk- models. Yeah, and, and, right? and I'm talking about the America. U.S. Yeah. specifically. But isn't that, doesn't that come into play? Because mm, well, you think... would come here and expect to see that because a majority of the population is white. So you would expect to see a majority representation white to some extent? Um, to an extent, but I'd also say that if you were to proportionally, representation isn't, um, the representation isn't there. Uh, Percentage-wise. Yeah, I don't think, I mean... Can you name Chinese American pop stars that aren't Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan? Uh, Chinese American. Okay, Asian American. Asian American. Um, well, there's that there's that K-pop group that's like all the rage that everybody <laughs> talks about. Um. Mm. there's that black cat that i know like the musical ones i guess i don't know of any uh, there was that actor i don't know names so this is gonna bite me in the ass right off the bat but there's that <laughs> actor that great actor who was in shang chi that marvel movie uh-huh. aquafina mm-hmm. uh, another great actress um so i can name a couple mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. really good yeah yeah a couple i can um, name a couple of really good black ones mm-hmm. denzel washington Man on Fire, great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's when you get into that realm. I, I'm not disputing the fact that there has been suppression in those fields for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're seeing that nearly on the same level today mm-hmm. by any means. I think we're doing way better today than we ever have. Mm-hmm. But there's just that weird narrative of it all being the white perpetrator and i get that i do get that but i don't think we can like put it on the white race that's such a broad term of people 
that are encompassed in that. And if you go to Africa, you're not going to expect to see, I doubt any of them know of a, I don't know, Asian American movie star over there. They probably know a ton of African movie stars. Mm -hmm. They probably know some white ones too from America for sure. But Mm -hmm. I think it's dependent on where you are too. I think that does have an effect. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'm doing justification in my explanation of that. Yeah, I'm leaning towards agreeing to disagree on this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I um, I hear you on that. I think that this, it, I think it's um, I just a very, very broad umbrella that we don't even know is there. That it's just... Um, broad umbrella of? Of our culture. Um, In ter- and, what, what do you mean? Of... Is, has underlying of, racial themes or of the white narrative that has been so predominant in our culture and again it's like learned through generations um and i think it's so complex that it's hard to just say an example and be like this is the reason why it there's so many little things um i think it trickles down um to I think even how people of color view themselves. So, okay. Again, I think this is a much, much broader uh, topic than I can really do it justice. But like growing up as like a little brown girl, I only, I watch Disney movies um, because you're in America. That's what you do. You, You know, that's what you grow up on. And I love them. I mean, Ariel's my girl. Um, you know, I I love all my like superheroes of sorts that I grew up with. But I didn't see any any of me in them, and I think therefore I grew up thinking that I was white. Not that I n- thought I looked white, but I, I that I embodied them and. Um, and I mean, sure, you have Jasmine. I'm sure, you have Mulan. Um, and I definitely resonated when I heard their stories. They resonated more with me. But that was the beginning of, I think, the diversification of um, representation in our media. You know, before that, I only saw white actors on the screen. Even when there was a Chinese character, they were played by a white person. When there was a black person, excuse me, when there was a black character, they were portrayed by a white person, you know? Or or if there were Chinese characters or Asian American characters, they played a very nuanced um, character that wasn't really the main story. A small it's part. never the main story. And if they are part of the story they're usually pretty stereotypical um so like but that's not done anymore right i mean i still kind of see it so like um now now you're seeing more diversity on screen but never like the big movies are very rarely two people of color like you'll have any rom-coms are like now it's kind of the thing to have like an Asian guy as like the heartthrob, but the love interest is always a white girl. Like you don't really ever have like two Asian characters. That's why, um, 
uh oh my gosh why am i blanking on the name of that movie um that aquafina's in and crazy rich Asians. crazy rich asians that's why crazy rich asians was and you said you didn't know names look at you um well i said aquafina <laughs> i knew her okay so but that movie was such a big deal for the asian american community because we were like whoa a whole asian cast and we're still kind of like it's still like a big production movie that's kind of a big deal so yes you're seeing it now but still there's like this this underlying like you can't have too many brown people in one movie where it's not going to do well kind of thing but doesn't that movie prove that's not true because that movie was a huge success right and if you're going to lean on that one movie as like but we have now we have crazy rich asians so now we don't have to do it anymore for anything else like it can't be just that one thing it needs to be a norm but right? that's yes but i mean what does that line of thinking lead to so then now every movie has to have no white people at all it has to all be people of color in order for us to give it the stamp of approval or what does that look like well i think we need to be moving towards real representation uh in in our media at the end of the day and that goes that is actors yes but also who is producing the movie? Where are we producing this movie? Is it authentic in that sense? Or is it all just kind of a stage where you have maybe some brown people in front of the camera, but then you still have white writers and producers trying to tell a story about brown people? You know, so I think, and you definitely see a lot more. I'm not saying that you don't. I'm saying it is, we are moving that way. But I'm saying historically, that hasn't been the case for hundreds of years. Well, well, movies haven't been around. Yeah, for, I, was yeah, yeah I, was, I was waiting for you to catch <laughs> yeah. me on that one. No, but, but I get. It's... I think people look grand scheme of things with that, but it's hard because this is the only time in the world mm. where we have come anywhere close to doing as good as we have now. hundred like percent. Yeah, yeah. People I don't disagree. With yeah, you. people have been mm. doing horrific things to people that look differently and people that look similarly. And people that are the same for most of human history. We're just a small blip in this time where, mm -hmm. okay, diversity is a thing. And, you know, we're not just going to go out and rape and pillage. Like, that's what most of human history looked like. Yeah, but is it just because we made a tiny bit of progress that we're like, all right, we've tried enough. Let's go back to what we were no, doing. No, I think <laughs> progress is always a good thing. Or most of the time is a good thing. I think that when it comes to race and diversity today, how do I want to phrase this? I think when it comes to race and diversity today, people are over overextending the line. So it was it was this one way previously where it was all white people, and I worry now people are trying to push it to the point where, okay, now we can't have any white people. We have to, in order for diversity, we need to, we can't have a white love interest. We can't have a white lead. We're almost going too far. I think balance is important. So white people, black people, people, people that are in this country, which is a very mixed country, which is fantastic. You don't find that in a lot of other countries. Mm -hmm. You go to Germany and it's a lot of white people. You go to Africa, it's a lot of black people. Here we have such a broad diversity of people. I think that because race was such a big factor and is still a factor the chance of us overshooting balance 
and going too far now in this other direction. I think that is a possibility. So I'm always hesitant when people start going down that line to try to yeah, push guess, deeper just to um, see. Maybe that's my own well, I just don't twisted think way of that looking we've, at it. We've hit that equal equilibrium yet. Mm -hmm. Like I know you're talking about, yes, everyone should be included. And I think, yes, it should. But I again, I think we're in this time of listening. I think we're in this time of white people have had their moment for many, but see, isn't many that a, a crazy, moment. Isn't that statement in and of itself, isn't that a crazy statement? White it's, people have had their moment. It's a crazy statement to um, some people. Yeah. I, I imagine a lot of people think that statement is crazy. But I think if you want to move forward, um, you have to be a little extreme. But doesn't you have to push the bar. But doesn't saying white people have had their moment, doesn't that imply that white people now need to take a back seat? I 100% that is exactly what I mean. White people need to take a back seat. That's crazy, though. Isn't that racist saying that? Nope. What if I said black people need to take a back seat? Nope. That's not racist? Well, that's not what is happening. Back, black people have had the back seat. No, they haven't even I, been in the car just, for the last. That's a good one. Like we, but, we but need to stop saying, and listen. Isn't that saying that statement? Isn't me saying black people need to take a back seat? Is that racist? Oh, if I said that. I okay. I'm not gonna project onto you if you think it's racist or not. Do I think that they should? No. I think that we should amplify black voices as loud as we can right now whoever you are. I don't think that we should be trying to suppress anybody's voice who has not historically had a voice in our country for a long time. Nick, you are burning right I, now. I, I, <laughs> I'm getting, I have, I have I, found that little button no, in you I and love, I pushed it. <laughs> I love talking about this just because I'm over here and that... I, I love that we're talking about this, by mm -hmm. the way. I just think that that is so crazy i think that saying anybody needs to take a backseat or any voice needs to step down mm -hmm. that's what i'm worried about in this whole overshooting the mark because I, I think yeah. everybody deserves an equal voice whether you're white whether you're black whether you're brown everybody deserves an equal say on everything okay, doesn't matter so your skin color i guess just where i think we're losing each other here is that i don't disagree with you what I'm thinking is that historically, who has had, who has been in the driver's seat? But that depends on where you look. In Historically, America, in this country? Yes. White people. Yeah. We're but talking not, about this country. But no white person that's alive today, right? I don't know any white people alive today that have slaves in this country. Well, I'm, we're, we're, yeah, we're not talking about slavery. I'm just talking about in general, whether you're in government, whether you're, leaders in your community, whether you are the predominant culture, it's been white people. But a majority of people here are white. Well, maybe historically they were, but, but there there's are... always been people that have not been white in this country. No, absolutely. But a majority in this country are white. That's a safe assumption, right? So what I think that you're doing though right now is you're grouping the white race together that because we're the majority we should have the most power we no i didn't say that most. that's what i'm it, just saying but okay if we're going off representation as a as a representation of population size 
wouldn't you expect mm. to see more white people because there are more white people here? Yeah, but don't you feel like those tides are turning? I don't know. I haven't looked oh, at I the think census so. I think because I do feel like Mexicans are going to take over. Absolutely. Uh, that's that's the growing population. That's I believe here in the next decade they're going to mm. overtake for sure. But I, if I'm just making an uninformed statement, I'm going to say that white people are still the majority. Maybe, but ba- slightly. Slightly, yeah. I think very slightly. But then, if we're going point. off that, we should have way more Mexicans in movies. So, where I think that the point that I'm trying to make, I think we're just we're missing here passing is that yeah, we're a little bit talking past each other only because, again, I don't think we've hit that moment where everyone has had their voices heard. We're still going around the table. Mm-hmm. And it's been white person, white person, white person, white person, white person. Oh, we'll put a Asian person in there. Okay, white person. And now we're getting to the, we're still looking at the table and we're like, hmm, this still looks a little skewed. I don't think this whole half of the table has had their voice or anything said yet. We need to get through everyone and everyone needs to talk about what they need to talk about. And everyone needs to listen and then we can talk about a balance i mean maybe i feel like though we're so far away from everyone you think we're being still heard. too skewed i think we're still to too skewed i that's just where i just don't think that we've hit that point where it's like okay so we put out um you know a couple of movies that have non-white actors in it that's enough that's good let's just go back to what we were doing before no like we need to really sit and talk about it and listen to each other and allow those silenced voices to be heard. And that's going to take time. See, I don't have a problem with that at all. I agree with everything you just said. I think my hesitation comes from the point where it goes, and in order to do that, white people need to take a back seat. That's where I'm like, okay, pause. Because isn't that the same as racist white people saying, X group needs to take a oh, backseat. Oh, uh, no, absolutely not. What I'm saying is like, so with the Chinatown project, yes, it is driven by um, a couple of us are Chinese Americans. Most of us are Asian Americans of different descents. Um, but then we do have a handful of white people that support the project and they're big parts of the project. And we consider, you know, they're there to. Um, help the project move and they help to amplify our voices. Uh, they are taking a back seat. They are not in the driver's seat. They are listening and they are helping to move us along. And I'm not saying sit down and shut up. That's not what I mean. I mean, see what your black and brown neighbors are doing? What are the struggles that they're facing in our society that are bigger than any of us, one person? And how can we help them along and get us all to equality? Because to think that we are in a place right now in our country where we are all equal is looking through the rosiest colored glasses that there ever was because we are far from it. It doesn't mean that we're not making progress because we're absolutely making progress. We just, it's going to take time. I mean, it's just going to take time. It's taken a lot of time to get to where we are. And we just have to, um, I think, be patient with it. So I think that 
saying nobody can say anything forever is not where I'm going with it. I'm, and that white people should just not say anything at all. It's that they should use their voices where they are helping others in this time of transition where we're at. We are. They should use their voice to boost non-white voices. Yeah, and listen, and or not use their voice and just listen. And um, isn't that crazy though? Am I just losing my mind over here? Well, I mean, was it crazy to say that black and brown people couldn't say anything for years and years and years? No. So, but. But is that justification to now turn it against white people? I'm just worried about the swing. I, I think we are on a why, pendulum ride. Why does it have ride? to be a, one or another? Like, why can't we all listen to each other? And that's no. To that's each other what, I agree with that. I I agree with that 100. percent The equal voice. What caught me off guard was when you said that white voices should take a back seat. That's what I was pressing against mm-hmm. yeah um well i think that you have to i think you have to listen sometimes that you can't always be talking but that extends to everybody that's people in general yeah but there's a big group of this country that has not ever had the microphone in front of them and we need to take that time to listen to them now and um that's what i'm saying with that we can agree to disagree on oh, this. I, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I hope you didn't take any of that as hostile. I I love that we had that conversation. I'm just, I'm pressing on that point because I'm genuinely trying to understand that perspective. That's why I'm I'm pushing a little bit against that is just to see mm-hmm. what comes out from that. And I wish we could continue, but I have to go to the bathroom so bad that I'm all, that's why I'm getting, that's why I'm over here shaking. Um, Brie, I had a great time talking to you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Do you want to plug any of your stuff where people can find the Eureka Chinatown project. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of this conversation was just me speaking to you. Yeah. Um, or where people can but, find you. You can plug whatever you want to plug. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think they've had enough of me for the last hour and a half or however long we've been sitting we, here. <laughs> we've been here for like two and a half hours. <laughs> well, that means we had good conversation. Absolutely. And I think we touched on a lot of topics that needed to be talked about. Um, and I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate um, you coming on. Yeah, I mean, definitely, I definitely say if you believe in amplifying black and brown voices um, to check out the Eureka Chinatown Project on Instagram um, and Humble Asians and Pacific Islanders are on Instagram and Facebook. But honestly, again, I think it's just about listening to each other. Whoever whoever your neighbors are, I just hope um, that we all take a moment to listen. Yeah. And talk to each other because now is a very chaotic time. Yeah. We need to come together. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Definitely. Bree, that was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. (laughs) Thanks, Nick. It was fun. Thanks, guys. (laughs)